When I was in middle and high school, my favorite subjects were always math and science. I excelled at them far more than reading, writing, or public speaking, which is really ironic because now my whole job is about reading, writing, and public speaking. Uh, so as a kid, I always thought I was going to be an architect. My uncle's an architect, or I thought maybe I would be an engineer. Uh, and God had a different plan for my life. He called me into ministry, and I put all that behind me, and I think I took one math class in college. So don't ask me about numbers. I'm not that good at it. Uh, but I really enjoyed it as a kid. I thought that's the direction I was going, and I still have this fascination even as an adult. So bear with me for a moment as I nerd out about something I still have interest in, which is engineering and architecture. Uh, there's this piece of infrastructure in the state of New York called the Delaware Aqueduct, and if you've not heard of it, it's the primary water supply to the city of New York, and it brings more than half a billion gallons of water a day to the city. If you stop to think about how New York gets all of its water, it's kind of mind-boggling because there's nearly 9 million people and it's an island surrounded by salt water. So none of it's drinkable. So over, well, about a century ago, all these city planners and engineers and, and architects and designers and politicians had to come up with a plan. The city was growing rapidly. How are they going to provide enough water when the natural spring water on the island was no longer sustainable, was no longer enough for the people. And so that's where the Delaware Aqueduct comes in. To this day, even though it was completed in 1945, it's the longest tunnel in the world at 85 miles long. It brings water from the Delaware River Basin from upstate New York all the way down to the city. I couldn't imagine being in that meeting saying, you know, the best possible solution for how we can bring water to our city is to build the longest tunnel in the world. Think about that for a moment. The longest tunnel in the world, one of the most expensive infrastructure projects in American history, wasn't completed by the US government, wasn't completed by the state of New York, it was the city of New York said, we're gonna build this tunnel to bring water to our people. Some of you are really bored right now. You're like, why is Kyle talking about this? I don't care about engineering and infrastructure. Let me make a connection. We're always making cost-benefit analyses in our lives, all the time. When you go shopping, you're making a cost-benefit analysis, whether this food is, is the right price, whether the clothing you buy is going to suit you. Whatever decisions you're making, you're, you're saying, here's the cost. What's the benefit? Should I follow through? And this piece of infrastructure, the Delaware Aqueduct, is this extreme example where a city said, it is so important for us to get water that we are willing to go to extreme lengths, make the longest tunnel in the world. It, it, Great cost. They're repairing a small section of it now in New York, and it's costing them a billion dollars, but it's worth it. The cost is worth the benefit. And it's not just governments that's do, that are doing this. It's not just big businesses that are doing this. You're doing this every day, and you ought to be doing it in your spiritual life. In fact, Jesus commands that we do so. In Luke 14, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters... Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? When Jesus is talking about being his disciple, he uses an analogy, an illustration of an infrastructure project. If you're going to sit down and build a tower, you're going to count the cost in the same way when you come to me to be my follower, you need to count the cost. This fall, we've been talking about what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? 
What is the identity of a disciple and what is the life of a disciple? We've been talking a lot about the identity. Later this fall, we'll get into the life of a disciple. And we've said that identity of a disciple is to be the beloved of God, a chosen child, blessed, broken, resurrected, and fed. And today we are talking about what does it mean to be broken for Jesus? What does it mean that being broken is a central piece of our identity as followers of Christ? And I want to tell you the cost is very, very high. And I want to tell you it's worth it in every way. We have two primary passages we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 37, and Revelation 3, 15 to 20. And we're going to see two things. One, what's the cost? What does it cost us to follow Jesus, to be broken for him? And then secondly, what does it cost us to not follow Jesus? What are the blessings and the benefits we miss out on when we don't give ourselves completely to Christ? So you have a Bible, open up with me to Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return? For his soul. One of the harshest rebukes in all of Scripture is saved for Peter when he misunderstands the point of Jesus' messianic mission. Jesus says the heart of the gospel, that the Son of God is going to be put to death and rise from the grave. Elsewhere, he says that he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He came to be crucified. That's why Jesus came. Peter totally misunderstands. He pulls him aside and says, no, Jesus, we want you to be a victorious king. We want you to overthrow our Roman captors. We want you to bring the kingdom of Israel back into glory, and we want to be your right-hand men who benefit from that glory. We want to share in your glory and your blessing and your benefit and your honor. And Jesus says, you are completely missing it. Get behind me, Satan. This isn't from God. This is from man. You don't have your heart set on what it means to be a disciple. You see, Jesus knew that he came to be crucified, but he also taught us that we must follow him, that our discipleship mirrors his own life, that just as Jesus was broken, that Jesus was crucified, he tells us we must deny ourselves and take up our cross if we're to follow him. One commentator puts it like this, the paradox of salvation is that it costs us nothing yet it costs us everything. Salvation comes through faith alone, apart from any works that we can do, yet to depend on Christ for salvation means giving up your old life with its pride, conceit, and ambition. Jesus says if you want to be his disciple, you must deny yourself. That is, renounce any claim to your own life and live wholly for God. Clearly, central to the identity of a disciple is being broken for Jesus is laying down your life and taking up your cross. But what does that mean? Those are some nice words, but 
It's often lost on us. What does it mean to deny myself and take up my cross? Well, for starters, it doesn't mean simply denying things to myself. Jesus isn't saying simply you need to you know, limit your sweets and your alcohol and be a self-disciplined person. That's all fine and good, but he means much more than that. Not simply self-limitation, but self-renunciation. To say, I'm no longer the ruler of my life. Jesus, you are. You are king and I am your servant. I am your slave. Jesus is saying, you need to reverse the original sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, who when they took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, wanted to be like God. They wanted to erase the creator-creature paradigm. And so Jesus is calling us to put ourselves in submission under his rule and reign. He is king, and we are his slaves, his servants. And then to take up our cross doesn't simply mean to live a life of hardship or difficulty. That's often how we read it, that, oh, I need to be facing difficult things. Some of us, frankly, are not going to face many difficulties in our life, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying you need to count Jesus better than your life. You need to choose Jesus as more valuable than your own life. And so that means some Christians, many in other parts of the globe, are daily put to death because they choose Jesus as more valuable than this earthly life. For the rest of us who won't be put to death for our faith, it means renouncing all things as less important, less valuable, less of a treasure in our hearts than Jesus is. That we would rather have Jesus supremely in our hearts, in our minds, follow him with all of our actions. Clearly to follow Jesus is a big cost. A lot of times, missionaries understand this cost very well. Famously, Adoniram Judson, who was a missionary to then Burma, now Myanmar, said to his wife, Anne, when he proposed, give me your hand to go with me to the jungles of Asia and there die with me in the cause of Christ. He knew from the outset he was asking her to deny herself and take up her cross too because he had already decided that's what he was going to do. He was going to Asia to live for Christ. And he suffered greatly. Sadly, he was widowed twice. He lost six children. He was imprisoned for two years. He suffered greatly for the cross of Christ. And he had a huge impact too. He baptized over 7,000 believers. He helped start 63 churches. He translated the entire Bible into Burmese. And most Christians today, over 3 million in the country of Myanmar, trace their lineage back to Adoniram Judson and his work there. Judson had counted the cost of following Christ, and he deemed that it was worth it. It was a great cost, but he was willing to go. So what does it mean for you and me in Littleton, Colorado? Because the vast majority of us are not called to sell our houses, give away all of our money, learn a new language, travel across the, the globe, and preach the gospel to an unreached people group. The vast majority of us in this room are called to follow Jesus here in Littleton, Colorado. So what does it mean for you and me to deny ourselves and take up our cross? Well, for starters, I just want to say, I don't want to minimize this. I'm going to, I'm going to give a few points of application, but this is a whole life-encompassing commitment. And so I'm not trying to boil it down to just a few things you can check the box. Jesus wants all of you. He wants every part of your life. He wants every piece of your heart. He wants you completely. And so I'm going to give a few points of application, but it's, it's probably broader than this. But I think these three areas are helpful for me. I, I know they help ground me when I think about my discipleship to Christ. 
So first, I think denying ourselves and taking up our cross looks like reevaluating what is my purpose in life. What are my goals? What are my ambitions? What am I living for? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What's your purpose? Is it to glorify Jesus Christ? Is it to see the character of Christ more deeply formed in you? Is it to be a witness to a lost and dying world of the hope of reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ? Or is it something else? Is the purpose of your life career advancement? Is the purpose of your life growing wealth and influence and comfort? Is the purpose of your life your own sense of personal fulfillment and happiness? These are hard questions. Most of us are not called to a radical career transition to abandon everything we know and and go off somewhere to, to minister in Jesus' name. Some of us are. But most all of us need to reflect on this question of purpose. What do I live for every single day? Do I live for the glory of Jesus Christ? Is he my greatest treasure? Am I seeking his name and his fame every day of my life? I think a second key area, what it looks like to deny myself and take up my cross is to reevaluate my sense of freedom, the choices that I make, how I use my will. Probably almost all of us, maybe all of us in this room are American, and so we're poignantly aware how American ethos and culture celebrates our freedom, celebrates protecting our freedom, expressing our freedom, being the land of the free. We love that, and I think it's generally a good thing. Generally, it's a great thing that we can worship Jesus freely in this country. However, if freedom becomes so deeply a part of your personality, it might actually work against your discipleship to Jesus. Because one of the key analogies I've already referenced in this sermon is that we are slaves to Christ. Yes, in Jesus' name, we are free from sin, death, and hell. But we are put under the yoke of Jesus. We are his slaves. We exist to serve him. So what do you do with your freedom? I remember in college, a friend of mine, Josh, I've talked about him before. He was really upset. A a group of our friends were going out and drinking. And at Moody, we had all signed a student life agreement. Even if we were 21 years old, we were not going to drink. That was a commitment of our, our agreement. And these students were saying, in our freedom in Christ, we're 21. Nobody's getting drunk. We're all being safe. This is just some dumb, arbitrary rule Moody is making us commit to. And so we're going to go out and enjoy ourselves. And my friend Josh was so upset. He said, what about your freedom in Christ to not do certain things? What about your freedom in Christ to limit yourself? What about your freedom in Christ to say no to the temptations of the world? What about your freedom in Christ to be a person of integrity? Do what you say you're going to do. And that really stuck with me. We have great freedom in this country, great freedom in Christ, but not all things are helpful or good. Paul says in Galatians 5.19, we were called to freedom. Let not your freedom be used as an opportunity for the flesh. So I ask you, especially in your leisure time, in your weekends, in your evenings, how do you use your time? Perhaps Game of Thrones is really entertaining and the nudity involved is not good for you. Perhaps uh, the endless scroll on social media is actually warping your soul. Perhaps some of the things you're engaged in are in your freedom to do and are deadening your life with God. Are you choosing to submit yourself, seeing yourself 
primarily as a slave and servant to Jesus, that every area of your life needs to be in submission to his will. Thirdly, a big area where I think denying ourselves and taking up our cross is our hearts. What does it look like for us to love Jesus most of all? In the Luke 14 passage I already read, he says, you must hate your spouse, your parents, your kids, your family and friends, even your own life, if you'd be my disciple. Now, Jesus is not being literal. There are other places where Jesus is very extreme and not literal. He says to us, cut off the hand and pluck out the eye that causes you to sin. Christians have not been maiming themselves for 2,000 years. They do understand that we need to be deadly serious about getting temptation out of our lives. In the same way, Jesus is not saying, literally, you must hate your family. He's saying, you must love me so much that by comparison, your love for your family looks like hate. That's how much I need to be first in your life. Jesus before your spouse, Jesus before your kids, Jesus before all of your friends. Is Jesus your greatest love? And I'll tell you a secret right now. If you love Jesus first and best, you will love everyone else better. It's actually in putting your loves in a disordered way in your heart, you actually find that you are mistreating and harming your kids and your your family as you put them on this idolatrous pedestal. Jesus needs to be first in your life. Is he your greatest treasure? Is he your highest value in this world? The cost of discipleship is incredible. It asks everything of you. It asks you to reorder your sense of purpose in life, reorder your entire heart in your loves, give over your freedoms to Jesus Christ to honor him with every part of who you are. But I'll tell you right now, it's worth it. The cost of not being broken for Jesus is far greater. Jesus finishes his teaching in Mark chapter eight with two questions. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? The answer to both questions is nothing. A man can return nothing for his soul. Nothing is as valuable as your soul. And if you gain the whole world but miss Jesus, you've lost. So turn with me to Revelation 3, 15 to 20, and we're going to meditate more deeply on what is the cost of not following Jesus. So Revelation 3, beginning in verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. This little section of the book of Revelation is a letter directly from Jesus to the church of Laodicea. And the church of Laodicea was lukewarm in their faith. They had not denied themselves, taken up their cross, and followed Jesus. They had not given themselves completely to their Savior. And so Jesus has this harsh rebuke for them. I think they are a good warning for what's at stake if we don't follow Jesus, if we don't give our lives to him. 
But more than that, I think it's also a good warning because I think the church of Laodicea, the city of Laodicea, is a lot like us. Laodicea was a wealthy community. It was at the crossroads of three major highways. It was well known for its school of medicine, for its fine clothes, for its hot springs. It had a gymnasium, multiple theaters, public baths. It was a wealthy and successful city. Littleton, Colorado is an upper middle class suburb of a wealthy, successful, flourishing American city. We have a growing tech center, higher than average incomes. The national median for household income is about $70,000. So I'll let you do the math on your household, but I'd argue that most of the people in this room are in the upper 50% of the wealthiest nation in the world. We're very well off. We're very wealthy. Some of the same temptations that face Laodicea face us. And so Jesus looks to them, this people that were confident in their wealth, confident in, in all of their production. And he says, you've missed it. He says, you're lukewarm in your faith. You think you are wealthy, you are rich, you are prosperous, but you are actually poor. You've not counted the cost. You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. In their lukewarm faith, the Laodiceans had actually missed everything. They had missed the glories of being Jesus' disciple. They'd settled for far less than they could have had. Famously, Dallas Willard uh, wrote in his book, The Spirit of Disciplines, The Cost of Non-Discipleship. Non-discipleship costs us abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. The Laodiceans in their lukewarm faith lost peace, joy, comfort, hope, abiding faith, transforming power to be new people in Jesus Christ. Does that sound familiar? Francois Fenelon is a famous Catholic theologian and mystic, and he wrote about the struggle to give ourselves completely to God, and this is what he had to say. What folly to fear to be too entirely God's, it is to fear to be too happy. It is to fear to love God's will in all things. It is to fear to have too much courage in the crosses which are inevitable, too much comfort in God's love, and too much detachment from the passions which make us miserable. Woe unto those weak and timid souls who are divided between God and their world. They want and they do not want they are torn by passion and remorse at the same time. They fear the judgments of God and those of others. They have a horror of evil and a shame of good. They have the pains of virtue without tasting its sweet consolations. Oh, how wretched they are. Do you, does that sound familiar to you at all? Do you sense loss in your own spiritual life? I have some difficult but important questions for you. Are you miserable in your faith today? Are you unsatisfied in your prayer life? Do you feel torn between two lives you're living, one for your selfish desires and one for Jesus? Do you feel overwhelmed with a sense of shame for your hypocrisy and the things that you do in the dark? Do you miss 
peace, joy, hope, love, transforming power in your life with God. If you answer yes to any of these questions and more, then you know what it costs you to dabble in your discipleship. You already know what it costs you to be lukewarm in your faith. And I don't ask you these questions because I've got it all figured out. I know perhaps best as a pastor how easy it is to live a two-faced life, how easy it is to be greedy and envious and want the things of the world and miss God's joy. So I don't ask you to to beat you over the head, to, to heap shame on you. I ask you because I want you to have the abundance of life that Jesus promises us. I want you to know the joys of an undivided life, completely given to Jesus. So hear the good news of the gospel. This is what Jesus says to the same church that he said, I will spit you out of my mouth. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Again, he says, I counsel to you, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Salve to anoint your eyes so that you may, be, you may see. Isaiah 55 immediately comes to mind. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. The paradox of discipleship is that it costs you everything, and it costs you nothing. It's completely free. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. I don't know where you're at with Jesus this morning. I don't know if you're coming in this morning in a great rhythm in your life with God, full of joy and vigor and zealous for the Lord. Maybe you come in exhausted in a difficult season in your life, in marriage, in your prayer life, longing for God to meet you. Maybe you come in bearing shame this morning for things you did this past week, for regrets that you hold. Wherever you are at with Jesus this morning, he stands at the door of your heart and knocks And he calls out to you with a voice of love. Open the door. I long to make you rich. That you might know the riches of an undivided life. Fullness of joy and peace, hope, faith, comfort in God. I desire to make you holy. To cover over your shame with my own righteousness that you might stand before the Father and know what it is to be a beloved child of God. I long to make you see that you might know the goodness, the infinite goodness of God's mercies and grace that you'd missed before and that you might rightly see how pitiful and wretched are our earthly substitutes. I long to come in and fellowship with you that you might know the goodness of life with God. Jesus longs for you. He wants you to know fullness of life, having given yourself completely to him. The cost of discipleship is high, but it's worth it. One of my favorite parables in all of the Bible is one verse, Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field, and a man finds it and covers it up, 
And then he goes and sells all he has in joy to buy that field. That's the cost-benefit analysis of the kingdom. Jesus is better than everything. He's better than anything you are wrestling with to give to God. He's better than anything this earth could ever promise you. Jesus is everything. So I ask you, come to the table this morning ready to give yourself to Jesus, knowing that he has already given himself completely to you, that he does not ask you to do something he didn't do for you first, but he was broken on the cross. His blood was shed, his body was broken in love for you. So give yourself completely to him in joy because he's the best possible thing you could have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we would have more of Jesus in our lives. Give us a holy dissatisfaction, Lord, for the things of this earth. Show us how pitiful and wretched are our substitutes for life with you. Give us more of Jesus today that in being broken for him, giving ourselves away, we would know the way of peace and life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen.